Uh, I just want to start by saying a massive, massive thank you to all of you guys. Um, while I was away, uh, both in uh, Bangladesh and in the Czech Republic, um, I just knew you guys were really supporting me and praying your socks off for me all along the way, and it made such a big difference. So I just want to say thank you to you all. I normally start um, by a disclaimer. Uh, I'm just going to talk a little while um, about my visit to Bangladesh, uh, what it was that I got up to, how the people where I was lived. It's such a a million miles away from anything that we do around here. I thought start by uh, giving you a little bit of background and then going a bit deeper into what I was up to. However, saying all that, like uh, Simon said, it is just my story. So it's very um, subjective. It's just the things that I saw and perceived and was told. So some of this stuff will just be very, very relevant to the, the place in Bangladesh where I was. Uh, when I talk about the poverty over there, yeah, it's massively poor, but there's some other places in the country which um, are not as bad off and they've got quite a lot of wealth um, the hospital that I worked in um, was very poor, but again, there's other hospitals in the country that are, do have a lot of money behind them, and they have the same sort of equipment that we would have um, over here. So I guess I'll start by um, showing you what it was that the people lived. Normally, people would be living in mud huts, and when I first saw this, it sort of blew my mind a little bit, because... You don't expect people in this day and age to still be living in mud huts. And this wasn't like the token one in the village. This was, the village was made up of these mud huts. And normally, um, you would have one family living in one of these huts, and they'd all sleep on the same bed. If they were a little bit more well-off, they'd maybe have a little bit of land, uh, where they'd have some chickens and things. Uh, if they weren't so well-off, then they wouldn't have some land. But the majority of the people in the villages would have uh, a fairly decent mata. There was a significant portion of people who um, would be living in these sort of huts. Um, and as you can see, it was right by the, the train line. This is an uh, a active working train line. So every like half an hour, whatever, a massive train would roll past. Uh, the ground would shake. The people who lived in these huts were so poor. Um, and they literally had nothing at all. Uh, it broke my heart every time, because every time I went into the, the main town area, we'd had to walk past these guys. Um, and it sort of reminded me of uh, what a refugee camp might be like. Um, but obviously it was worse, because the refugee camp means that people have been moved out of their homes. Uh, these were their homes, so people would be born, they'd live and they'd die and then go on to the next generation and they would not move out of these huts. So it's a really sad place to look at. Uh, the majority of people would do all of their cooking over uh, a big open fire and they'd normally fry everything in oil. Uh, they'd make, again, out of mud, a nice little oven where they would just be feeding it with uh, fire and sticks uh, and then the fire would, would cook up the oil and then cook up their food. This was uh, from the marketplace, so it was a bit bigger than a, a standard fire that most people would have for their cooking in their houses, but it's a similar sort of uh, thing. I'll come back to why that was an issue later. Um, the whole place was surrounded 
in rice fields or paddy fields. The majority of Bangladesh is completely underwater and completely flooded. Uh, they've made advantage of that by planting all these rice, and that's what a lot of the people would do for their work. So you'd get one wealthy landowner who owned a massive amount of the land, would just employ the people who had no work, and they would come and, and plant the rice, and then when it's harvest time, they'd come and harvest it. They'd do maybe four harvests per year, so quite a lot of income. Um, people would be able to work. Unemployment in Bangladesh was so high, it's silly, it's... Um, the country itself is smaller than uh, England, so not including Scotland and Wales, so just England, it's smaller. But it's in something ridiculous, like the top 5% of populated countries, and there's just no work there, so poverty is, is a massive thing. If anyone was to get around anywhere, you would normally go around on the, the train lines. This is just a, a photo of some chap that I was, wanted his picture taken. <laughs> um, and everyone would just walk up and down the main train lines. The train lines, again, would be active, so you had to be a bit careful not to get hit by the train, and especially if you um, were walking across these bridges, which were uh, qu quite a few along the way into town. So depending on how long the bridges was, you just had to make sure there was no train coming so you wouldn't get hit. Uh, I was walking along these one night um, along the train line to get to uh, a wedding party, and I completely forgot that all of a sudden they just dropped down and it's just like a, a, you would say a river, but it was just like a tiny trickle of water over some concrete. So you'd do yourself some serious damage if you fell, which I nearly did a few times. So you had to be careful. Uh, everyone, if they didn't walk and they had to go a fairly decent distance, they would get one of these, which was a, uh, a Vangari. You would pay the chap who's sitting a little bit taller than the two ladies. He would be on a little push bike at the front and they would cart around people or massive loads. Uh, if you were a little bit more well-off and fancier, you could go along on uh, one of these, which is a rickshaw, same sort of principle, but you would only take people on them and only ever two. I'd seen up to maybe six or seven people on the back of one of those Vangaris, just pedaling along by one like really skinny guy. I don't know how they did it. I had a go um, when... It was just me, obviously the guy whose bike it was, and two of my friends, and I couldn't go anywhere on it, and I cycle everywhere, so I don't know how they did it. Any other serious distances, you would have buses. This bus, um, health and safety is it? everything over there. You wouldn't believe it. Um, this bus wasn't stopping. It carried going. I did nearly get hit by it. Um, this chap's not getting off. He's just standing with his arm out of the window as he goes by. There's a bloke on top. And I would also see this new thing with the kids on the trains. And while the trains were going along, they'd sort of stand themselves up on the top and lean into the wind. It's crazy. Um, one of the, the main uh, roads into town was crossed a railway line. And obviously health and safety, they had uh, barriers that went down to stop the, the cars from getting across when the train was coming. But obviously this slowed down the traffic, so they built a little road around the barriers so <laughs> you, could, you could carry on going. It's, it made me chuckle every time I saw it. This picture uh, was a, uh, a Hindu uh, festival that I uh, went along to just to have a look at. Uh, it started r ridiculously early. It was like five o'clock in the morning. And they just started banging gongs and chanting and dancing. They like, brought out a little shrine and they sort of danced around it for 
constantly for 24 hours. Um, the reason why I show you this is because this uh, chap down the uh, uh, right-hand corner, there's not anything around his neck. That is his neck. Um, most people wouldn't go to see a doctor or to the hospital or anything like that unless their symptoms for whatever it was that they had were so bad that they couldn't work anymore or they couldn't function in the normal way. This was really sad because often it would be that the people who would come into the hospital it would be too late sometimes for us to do anything about and I don't know why this was. I'm not sure if it was to do with um, the, the cost of... Uh, getting medical treatment or whether it's to do with the education. Our hospital worked in a way where everyone would have to pay for all of the treatment that they received, but you could apply for what they call poor fund, which was a, a means-tested way of uh, seeing how much income that person or that family would have. And then depending on that, they would then work out how much money they would have to pay for their treatment. So the rich landowners would have to pay for everything. The very poor people who lived by the side of the railway tracks would get everything paid for them. And then depending on where you were on the, on the scale of work was depending on how much you had to pay, which, which seemed to work quite well. There's obviously problems with that, but it does the job. Also, I mentioned uh, education was a problem uh, with, with people coming to see the doctor. This is one sign, and there was these massive billboards everywhere, all around the place. Uh, and it's really simple. This one was for uh, babies, obviously. And if your baby looks like this, go to the hospital. If your baby looks like this, go to the hospital. If your baby looks like this, go to the hospital. There's also another one for um, pregnant mums. You know, if you're if you look like this when you're pregnant, go to the hospital. If you look like this when you're pregnant, go to the hospital. Uh, but it seemed to be working because I guess people were coming more into the hospital. This was the hospital itself. Um, Lamb Hospital was a really... The hospital itself was very small. It had about 150 beds, I think, um, they would do loads and loads of community work. So there's loads of uh, littler outreach hospitals like safe birthing clinics and, and things all scattered around. Uh, and they would do so much work in the community. It was really good. And the average ward looked a bit like this. Um, you can see there there's no sort of real privacy. Uh, everyone's a couple of foot away from the next person in the bed. That meant if someone in the uh, in the bed next to you took a turn for the worst, uh, everyone in the ward would see. Uh, the whole hospital itself sort of reminded me of what it might have been like about 100 years ago or so in Ipswich. Um, the children's ward was a little bit better. Um, there's a little bit more space, and they had some... The main ward, which was right by the nurses' station, was this. Also, they had little side rooms. I uh, never quite worked out what it was that put you in a side room or in the main room. This place uh, was really, really good place some days. Uh, a really, really difficult place to come and visit other days. There was a, a small boy, I think he was about four years old, who, um, who came into the hospital. He... 
when he was born, his muscles uh, in his, his abdomen didn't stitch together properly, uh, which I believe is a, a fairly easy thing to correct when over here. Uh, they would just be sorted out really quickly. As soon as you get born, the, they would just stitch up your stomach muscles, and then from that, they would knit together in the normal way, and then you could carry on as normal. Uh, the little boy who, who came in who was born like that, apart from n- no one was there when he was born, so his stomach muscles didn't knit together, which meant when he turned up at a hospital, uh, all of his abdominal contents was sort of in like this membrane sack uh, which he sort of held with a with a stick um he was gonna die from that uh so there's a a chap called uh dr bob which i'll talk about in a minute uh and he done i think it was something ridiculous like 12 operations to try and get his abdomen contents back inside his stomach which because he'd been living like this for four years all of his skin and his muscles were so small and so shrunken so they had to slowly try and stretch this this skin and the muscle back over his um stomach and um, unfortunately he died um during i think it was it's like his 12th operation which was really really sad to see well that was one of the hardest things i think about being over there was seeing people who would have been alive if they were born in this country. Um, it's just it's horrible. Dr. Bob, uh, absolutely amazing surgeon. He, this was just one of the, uh, um, a little picture that was on the wall of the children's ward about the cleft lip operations. He uh, come from a long line of missionary surgeons. Uh, I think his son worked in a hospital just down the road he was just one of these gifted people and in any other situation i'd probably describe him as being very very annoying because whatever he did he just did it so well and he could just pick anything up just like that so uh this doctor came down uh i'm not quite sure where but came to the hospital just for I think it was something ridiculous, like a couple of weeks, he was a specialist in cleft lip operations, taught Dr. Bob how to do cleft lip operations, and then he just got on and done a load uh, and just improved the quality of all of these kids' lives. There was a special uh, obstetrics unit. That was the main purpose of the hospital, was uh, obstetrics and uh, babies, pregnant people. Um, Fistulas were a massive, massive problem. They uh, are unnatural joinings between uh, two parts of the body. Uh, The legal age for marriage in Bangladesh is, is 18. But often, I think, because people didn't know how old they were, uh... Lots of girls were getting married very, very young. Uh, and because they were then getting married, they're then getting pregnant. Because they were getting pregnant at such a young age, their bodies hadn't properly formed in the way to, to handle a child. So they would often get um, vaginal fistulas, uh, which is obviously a massive problem. So uh, the hospital set up a specialist centre to deal with these and they've just done loads and loads of these and again just really improving the lives of so many people this is um i've spoken and i think i wrote about this lady a few times 
she um, she came into the hospital um, uh, was heavily bleeding uh, in the very late stages of pregnancy. She had bled uh, so much that her blood pressure was so low they needed to get the baby out to then fix the bleeding, but they couldn't risk anaesthetising her because her blood pressure was so low uh, that if they did, she would have most certainly died. Uh, I have got uh, O-negative blood, which um, when I first turned up, the... There's two doctor couple, and they were absolutely amazing, James and Adrienne. And Adrienne was a specialist obstetrics doctor. And she was sort of quizzing me about my blood group and if I'd ever given blood and all that sort of stuff. And I thought nothing of it at all until um, James called me up one evening and go, uh, are you free? Can, can you come here now? Uh, and I sort of could tell by the agency of his voice that I needed to get there. And I, at the time, was completely unbeknownst of what I was doing. So I just went up. I gave some blood. They'd done the test. They took it. Uh, I went away. It sort of thought nothing about it. Adrienne later come back to tell me that it was uh, this lady who ended up receiving my blood. And uh, because of the... They knew exactly what blood group I was um, because I could run the test really quickly. And because of the speed that I just happened to get there, um, it meant that my blood could go into this lady. Uh, then they anaesthetized her. They got the baby out. They stopped the bleeding. And knowing that there'd be more blood from relatives and, and other people coming in to help her recovery. And this was uh, maybe about a week or so after her, her operation lovely, healthy baby boy. And it was just really nice to sort of go and meet somebody who you've actively helped. Um, this, uh, this whole happened, maybe um, I'd send an email to you guys um, asking you to, to pray that I'd just be in the right place at the right time. And, and I was, and it was amazing. The hospital complex wasn't just a hospital uh, like I thought it was when I went over. They also had uh, uh, a school I didn't really have anything to do with the school, uh, apart from some of my friends uh, taught there. They teach the English system for some reason. It was, it was recognised over there. So all their kids, they'd take through to GCSE level. The ones that had been there the longest were just starting to go into their A-levels, and that was a, 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 just a really great thing for them to sort of almost boast about and, you know, just be, just be proud of because they've done such a good job with them. Also, there was an education centre. Uh, this uh, wasn't for the children. This was for uh, different medical staff. It got so well known that the government were sending their people to be trained to the centre. And it was a really good way of training people up so they could be really, really good at what they did um, and have a really good Christian influence on them. Everything about the place was so overtly Christian that... You know, you just knew when you walked in, not in like an, an overbearing way, but it's just obvious. Um, this is the way that everyone spoke um, and everything, the ethos of the place. Um, the, it was sort of scary, I'll just go on for tangent, that I, I later learned, and everyone was very, very aware of the corruption, um, and you could get anything with a, with a bribe in the country. Um, the... Doctoring system was the same, so if you come from a well-off family, uh, you could buy your son a doctoring, and then he would be a doctor who would practice on people, regardless of how bright he was, which was worrying. So this sort of place was really good. <laughs> yeah. 
They had a rehab centre. I absolutely loved spending time in the rehab centre. Uh, the majority of my time I was spending in the hospital with the x-ray guys, um, sort of uh, working with them, teaching them, just being alongside them. I spent so much time, though, in the uh, rehab centre because I absolutely loved it. They would mainly be dealing with... Uh, disabilities for uh, uh, babies and young people. They would do some work with adults as well, and just the whole thing was absolutely amazing. The team, uh, which is a really small bunch, the three, the two ladies either side there sitting down uh, were the guys who were mainly in charge. Uh, the little lady standing up was sort of the, the groundskeeper type person. She'd make people tea, clear up things. She was lovely. The two guys in the middle, uh, they worked in the rehab centre... And again, any other context, I'd describe them as being really annoying because they were just so good at turning their hands into any sort of carpentry and um, metal work. So they would make custom-made frames and walkers and wheelchairs for, for the people there. And it was just so good and of such high quality. These were some of the stuff they would make. Um, they were just things that were just piled up, which I took a quick snap of. But the stuff, this photo doesn't do the, the what the quality of what they made justice. They uh, also used to... The stuff they made was so good that they would send it out to other hospitals and other places and other rehab centres, uh, and they'd sort of sell it um, as a way of making a bit of income, which was really good, because then they could use that to subsidise all the patients. This um, is... Uh, small group of some of the disabled adults that I worked with. I, um, when I first got there, wanted to be, um, be sort of used as best I could. Um, I chatted to some of the guys and they said about the disabled adults who do gardening every Thursday. And they had a really nice system of they would work uh, making different vegetables and flowers. The guy who run this whole scheme was a Dutch guy uh, and he was really, really into all of his plants and used to ship in like, seeds which we would take like, for granted, just like roses and those sort of things. But over there they'd never seen, so then they could then sell to the rich people um, for, for a decent profit. And what this Dutch guy was doing was then at the end of every month he'd split up his profit that he'd made from selling uh, and give it to these disabled adults as a sort of a wage. And they would also get some education at the end of the day. So it was really good. The, the system in Bangladesh... Um, Very, very unfortunately, and I say that because I, I've got such a strong belief that everyone is equal regardless of their, their colour or their abilities. In Bangladesh, it's not the same. So the instantly males are more respected than females. The whiter you are, the more respected you are. The um, more, if you were disabled, you were instantly at the bottom of the pile of, of respect. And, and it's everything about it. So it's the, the sort of deals that you'd get in the market and the way that people would treat you and the way people would look at you. Um, but fortunately, the whole respect system sort of rubbed off. So just me hanging out with these uh, disabled gardeners meant that because I was a male and because I was white... 
I was instantly at the top of the respect system, although I was a little bit young. If I'd have been old, I'd have been at the very top. Um, just because I hang out with them, I'd see them in the marketplace. I'd say hello to them just because I knew them. Uh, and instantly, the respect that people would have given me, they start to transfer onto them, which was amazing. This chap um, was really good fun. He was a really lovely chap to meet. He, uh, his legs didn't work. He had um, multiple sclerosis in his legs. Um, and I spoke about him before when I phoned up. He... He had a wheelchair, which was very, very low to the ground. And if he wanted to do anything where his wheelchair wouldn't go, he'd literally have to sort of, with his hands, drag himself through the dirt. The ground was, because of the climate, was so dusty and so dirty. If no one sat on the ground at all, they would do um, this weird sort of squat thing, um, which was very weird to look at. And if they were ever going to sit down on, um, if you're waiting for ages for a train, they would do this massive thing where they would make such a, and they'd, they'd blow on it and make such a big deal that they were cleaning the area before they sat down on it to give their legs a rest. This chap had no choice. He had to just drag himself through the dirt. So he was right at the very bottom of, of the class system. And it was just, I think with any cross-cultural dealings, you have to determine what issues matter and what issues don't. So while I was over there, they, the people had absolutely... They couldn't get their head around why a man would have earrings and, and nose rings. Um, fair point, I guess. <laughs> So, because it didn't matter, you just take them out. It just makes it easier. Um, however, the things that do matter uh, is even the, the other disabled gardeners, just because it was so ingrained into the way they lived, would treat this guy differently because of the fact that he couldn't n- not sit on the, on the dirt. Um, I sort of picked up on this quite quickly. And just decided that I was having none of it, so just sort of plonked myself down next to him and just started doing a bit of digging, just doing whatever he was doing. And he just couldn't get over the fact that somebody of a higher class in his eyes would, would just humble themselves, I guess, and just sort of sit in the dirt with him. And it was just so nice to see his face light up, because just giving back the respect that he should have, you know, giving back his dignity, it was lovely to see. I talked earlier about the, um, how people cook over the open fires. This was a massive, massive issue. Um, often women... I'll flick back a couple of slides. Um, so, so the lady at the end there, you can see her, her clothes that she was wearing, her shower kameez and her, her ornament, like her scarf, would all be really big, flowy materials. So if you're cooking over an open fire, you... Um, have to be really careful just the wrong move you turn around the wind catches it just wrong and the material that they're using would all just go up straight away um while i was there which was only two months and you've got to remember this was just a really small part of the country i saw four ladies come in who died from burns um and that's just such a horrific way of dying um yeah this uh, children would often come in this little fella, um, I imagine, like I say, they, they often cook with, with uh, um, boiling oils. 
and I guess if you're if you've got a family, a fairly large family, you're not paying attention to what all the kids are doing. They can pull on whatever, and and the oil comes over them, which is what happened to this chap. Um, his when I first saw him, he was in a real, real bad way. His head was all his skin on his head was completely burnt to bits. His um, his face, fortunately for himself wasn't affected but his body was burned all of his legs um were just completely blistered he um couldn't tolerate wearing any clothes he would just scream and scream and scream every time they tried to put um the the sort of oils and stuff to to help um help fix his skin uh the two months on he uh, was just about wearing clothes again. He was uh, teaching himself. They'd, they'd sort of sorted out some, some leg braces because uh, obviously his, his muscles were all burnt up as well. So he was teaching himself to walk again. And it was just so nice just to, just, just to see how these guys at the rehab centre were, were really making a difference to, to, to a few. And it was just great to see his improvement over, over a couple of months. I chatted about this chap before, Joyon. He um, he had a wasting disease in, um, which meant his muscles were slowly, slowly wasting away. He uh, he couldn't use his legs at all. Uh, his his left arm was slowly going. His brother uh, died. His older brother died of of the disease. He will eventually die of it. His his um, muscles will just slowly give out to the fact where he won't be able to breathe anymore and his heart will stop working. Um, his dad died of uh, something else. I couldn't quite work out what, but it wasn't wasn't the disease. So it was just him and his mum. And his mum was the tiniest, everyone over there. Um, I don't think I've got a picture of me standing next to someone. I'm not a particularly tall, tall chap, but everyone, I was just sort of towering above everyone. The, his mum was so small, it was, it was almost a joke. Um, obviously, he couldn't walk anywhere, so his mum would have to, anywhere he wanted to go, pick him up, sort of carry him to the next place and put him down. One of the uh, the doctors in the community sort of picked up on this, um, sorted out so they would, because they were so poor, sorted out so they could get the poor fund, so everything in the hospital would be paid for. Uh, they had to come in and the guys would make uh, a wheelchair for him so, so his mum could just push him around much easier. When I first met this chap, I met him by accident. I was... It was like my first week or something there, and I got confused on my days, what a surprise, um, of, of when the disabled gardeners were, were working. I turned up where the disabled gardeners, no one's there. But my friend who um, was a speech and language therapist sort of introduced me to him and go, oh, yeah, but come, come and play with this chap, he's really fun. Um, and when I first met him, although his mum, you could just tell his mum loved him so much, um, I think he must have just picked up on the fact that he was just a real burden to her. He would just sit on his chair. He was, he was about 12. Um, he would sit on the chair, wherever he was. He wouldn't play. He wouldn't make any noise. He would just sit there really, really quietly until he absolutely had to move to somewhere else. And then he'd call his mum over and his mum would pick up and move him. I instantly fell in love with him I thought he was brilliant um and I spent so much time with him really really fortunately um 
his wheelchair took ages to build. It took like a week or two weeks or something ridiculous. And every single day um, after I'd finished my shift at work, I would go and spend ages with him. And I would just sort of pick him up and carry him around and, and just just make a fuss of him. And it was so lovely to see his transformation in just a couple of weeks from being this, this boy who would just sit there and to try and make himself invisible to just a, just a normal 12-year-old boy being, like, boisterous and playful and, and sort of shouting. And, and oh, it's just lovely to see. Uh, also in the complex of the hospital was a, was a chaplain, uh, like, like a little church. They would have... Um, Two services every every Sunday, sort of like what we do. Same sort of format, apart from everyone would sit on the ground, and I would have absolutely no concept of what was going on because it was all in Bangla. Um, the chaplaincy team were absolutely brilliant. They, the the, the really small chap sitting on uh, the third in, he. Uh, his name was Noyon. He was uh, the radiographer who I was working with mainly. Um, because he was a Christian, it meant in his tea breaks, he would go and just hang out with the chaplaincy team um, and just sort of drink tea and chat about stuff with them. Because I had to hang out with him, it meant I went to hang out with the chaplaincy team one time, which was really good. Not everybody who worked in the hospital, was a Christian. The hospital, um, although it was overtly Christian, would employ people for their medical skill, not their religious beliefs. Um, but he happened to be a Christian, and so he hung out with the chaplaincy team, so I did. And it was really, really nice getting to know them. And their room was just off the edge of the, the main waiting room, and people would be waiting around there all day. Uh, and just because of the culture, people would just sort of wander in, they'd sit themselves down, they'd have a cup of tea, and they would just, just talk about just deep religious things, just because it was their culture to talk about religious things. The majority of the country uh, is Muslim, a very small majority is uh, Hindu, and an even smaller still is Christian. Um, but just the conversations they were having with the people, were just really, really good. I saw uh, two, two guys who, who, who gave their lives to Jesus in that room just from the conversations they were having while they were waiting for their, their, um, like their, their, their mum to get some medical treatment. So it was really good what they were doing. The one, one of the chaplaincy guys, um, uh, this guy in the end in like a, a, a shirt and a jumper looking a bit sharper than the rest, um, he, I don't know, we just sort of got, got on really well. Uh, we talked a lot about some stuff. He, he told me the story of how he became a Christian and he said that when he was young, he uh, was a really good Muslim boy. He went to the mosque uh, five times a day to pray. He would even actively persecute the Christians. Um, and then his English wasn't amazing, so I lost a little bit of the story, so forgive me. Um, some long-lost relatives or something started talking to him about uh, Jesus, and he eventually decided to give his life over to Jesus. He went to tell his dad that he wanted to give his life over to Jesus, and his dad and his brother beat him and uh, kicked him out of the family. He, um, I think he must have been fairly youngish when this happened because then he said that he carried on his education somewhere else um and 
uh, he, he eventually became uh, a preacher. He went back to his, his village um, and they, they made a really big thing about it over the announcement. They, um, they said that Shinu was back um, to face his, and they said judgment. Um, and, and he said that, you know, I, w- I will talk, you can accuse me of, of whatever you'd like to accuse me of. Um, I will then defend myself and that you can judge me as you see fit. He, he then preached from, from the Quran and from the Bible um, because those, uh, there's quite a lot about Jesus in, in the Quran. Um, so he preached from the Quran and from the Bible uh, and they found no reason to, to, um, to punish him. So he stayed and then he carried on preaching and he, uh, he eventually... Uh, managed to to just from talking and from preaching, convert quite a, a significant member uh, um, number of of his village, including his um, his dad, who is the the older chap with the beard, and his, his brother, who's the chap in the middle. It's my absolute privilege to go along. Uh, it took literally all day to get to this village, uh, and it was in the mi- absolute middle of nowhere. But I really wanted to go, and he really wanted to to take me. Um, and again, just from from being a man and from being white, um, everyone in the village wanted to come and see me. And some of the guys in the village from the Christians were still meeting um, at night under the cover of darkness. Uh, and just just because I was there, they all sort of came out and sort of publicly said that they were they were followers of Jesus, which was absolutely amazing. This was just a, a small number of the of the Christians in the village. And it was just really lovely to meet them, um, despite the fact that they go through so much persecution. They were just so full and alive with Jesus. This chap, one day I went round just to visit all the local um, and churches and, and meetings. Uh, some of them, uh, the, the Christians who got together, there was such a small number that they didn't even have a proper building. They just met in houses and things. Uh, this particular chap who's standing in the middle, and I didn't catch his name, unfortunately. He was the uh, pastor of uh, a fairly significant-sized church. I think they had about 100 members or so um, that would regularly attend. Um, and he told me that his persecution that he's been suffering was really, really bad. He said, it, just talking to him, he said that they can take away my my life and they can take away my land and they can take away my family, but they'll never take away Jesus from me. It's just meeting people like that. Would I be that? One day... Um, And it's possibly the hardest, hardest day in the whole trip. And I couldn't even talk about it for ages and ages and ages. I went to a... Went to a, a leprosy hospital. A leprosy hospital. Leprosy is such a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. 
And when you read about it in the in the Bible, and it talks about where you, um, if you have leprosy, you, you have to, um, you know, separate yourself from society. You can understand why, because the disease is just horrible. Um, this hospital was the most contrasting place I've ever, ever known. Because despite the fact that the disease is just awful, there was such a feeling of hope there, to the fact that I can't describe to you how horrible leprosy is, I can't describe to you how amazing the feeling of hope was in that place. They, um... Their mission statement was to minister in the name of Jesus Christ to the physical, mental, social and spiritual needs of individuals and communities disadvantaged by leprosy, working with them to uphold the dignity and to eradicate leprosy. And they were really, really doing that. They had um, amazing workshops uh, where they would make fake limbs for people who had lost their limbs from leprosy. Um, uh, they would have uh, special shoes that they were making for people uh, because leprosy doesn't just affect your skin, it affects your nerve endings. So the, the people who uh, had leprosy but now have been cured, uh, if they, they're, they're often affected their feet, they, uh, their nerve endings would be affected and because of that they wouldn't know if they were standing on glass or, or sharp rocks and then because of that their feet would slowly get worse and worse. Um, uh, they, there's still a massive, massive stigma attached to leprosy. Um, and the shoes they were making were absolutely brilliant because they were really good, thick, solid soles. But they looked just, everything was so ornamental. And it, it looked just like a normal sandal. Um, when they were there, um, I saw a workshop they were um, for, for girls. They would teach all the, the women who... Um, were, were suffering and getting healed from leprosy, um, how to sew, how to make uh, um, their clothes. They were teaching all the men. Uh, I didn't see uh, any of the men's workshops, but they were teaching the men to, to farm and to, um, to work so that when they came out of the hospital, they could then get themselves jobs. Um, and, and just it was just brilliant because they weren't just curing leprosy. They were giving them a means that when they left the hospital, they could, they could make a, a living for themselves and make a life for themselves, which was, was absolutely great. Um, there was one, uh, one young girl, and she couldn't have been more than about five, and um, she had, it was awful, she had leprosy all over her, her stomach and all the way down her, her leg, um, and they were doing this amazing work where they'd, they'd cured the leprosy itself so it wasn't spreading but they um, were putting implants under the good skin and then when the skin had sort of stretched and grown across the implant they would take the implant out and then stretch that good skin over the the, the skin that was diseased and sort of cut the diseased skin out and, and, and obviously it was quite extensive and she would have loads and loads of operations but they would eventually hopefully get um, just from like a, a patch of good skin at the top 
good skin all the way down, which then hopefully would mean that she could carry on the rest of her life fairly normally, which was, which was great. This place just, it just broke my heart, you know. I just, I'm just rounding up, so I've talked for ages. Um, uh, Dr. Sakai um, was an amazing um, obstetrics doctor uh, from Japan. A really good friend of mine. She really helped me out when I was over there. Uh, these chaps, we every Friday night we played cards together uh, and just had drunk tea and was just a bit normally just acted just like normal guys would. And it was so nice. Those, particularly those four, these three and, and Sakai, uh, were a real strength to me when I was over there. Um, I don't think I could have coped without these guys just, just you know, just to hang out with. Because they'd been there for so long, um, they, uh, you know, would know, knew what I was going through. As you can imagine, the whole experience was such an emotional roller coaster, um, And... Just them being there to support me was great. It was sort of easy for me because I knew I was there for such a short amount of time that I could really give everything that I had over, knowing that eventually it would come to an end and I would go. Um, These guys, Dr. Sakai, um, James and Adreen, Dr. Bob... They're all, some of these guys have now gone, but they've been there for absolutely ages. Dr. Bob, I think, basically, that's his home now. Uh, it would be great if um, you guys could, could pray for them, for the strength while they're over there. This is my last slide. I just, um, uh, Noyang, the, the, um, the x-ray guy, this was his little girl. It's uh, just a nice little slide, so I thought I'd put it up for the end. She absolutely loved me. Whenever I turned up, she would just sort of jump all over me and just, just like rub her head into my hair. I only later discovered that she had really bad nits. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess, um, I guess I'd just say, though I spent a couple of months over there, I didn't really do anything, you know? I was just a tourist who got a little bit involved um, and just met people, met people where they were, and just gave myself to them in a, in, a, in a way that I could. You know, you don't have to go to the other side of the world to do that. That's, that's the one thing I probably learned the most while being over there. You don't have to go there to sort of meet people who who need who, who need. Um, yeah. So uh, if I could ask just a couple of things, if you could pray for um, the guys who are out there for a seriously long time. Um, just for, for strength, I guess. If you could pray for the church, and I mean that in, in the wide sense of the word. Um, and again, I guess just for strength, for the, for the persecution that they suffer. Um, that would be great. It's sort of, I was talking to, to someone, and it sort of blew my mind a little bit when they told me, and I guess this is true, um, that we here now are really in the minority of people in the world who are not persecuted, you know, we, we sometimes say, you know, we get heckled or whatever, but it's no real persecution to what some of these guys are up against. So we are in the minority of the people who don't get persecuted for our beliefs. Yeah, the, the thing when I met these chaps, sorry, I will wind up in a minute, 
is I really just wanted to tell them when I was meeting them that we in the West as a church has not forgotten those guys who are being persecuted. Sorry, I bubbled on for ages. I'll, I'll hand over to Simon now. I'll stop. Oh, that's it. I've finished. <laughs>